Martin Meredith, The Fate of Africa, book of the year for 2014. This is a fantastic book. I would highly recommend every African to read this and every missionary and pastor to read this book. It is a history of Africa from 1954 until 2011. Really, it's a history from 1954 to 1994. Why would it be a history of those years? Because during those 50 years, Africa gained her independence, one country after another, from colonial powers. So this book is going to tell us what happened to Africa once the colonists left. And I'm going to tell you up front, he is a historian. He's not a believer, but he is a very interesting writer. Many history books are boring because they're written by people with PhDs. This is a fascinating book because it's written by a journalist. What's the difference between a journalist and a man who teaches at an academy. The journalist only gets paid if he's a good writer. The teacher gets paid as long as he shows up to class. So that means this guy was a journalist and his writing is so interesting. If you read just a few pages, you're going to say, well, let me just keep reading. It's really that interesting. And even though it's a very large book, it's 770 pages, but it has over 70 chapters. I'm sorry. It has 35 chapters. He wrote a second one for earlier on that has 70. Of these 35 chapters, there is a chapter on the Congo. There's two chapters on South Africa. There's a chapter on Zimbabwe, a chapter on Somalia, a chapter on Rwanda, a chapter on Ghana, Egypt, Algeria. There are chapters on numerous individual countries. If you would like to read The Fate of Africa, but you think, I can't read a 770-page book, then get the book and just read the chapter for your country you'll find that it's fascinating. You'll find you learn more about Zimbabwe and you think, I didn't even know this and I'm a citizen of that country. So let's jump right in and begin right at the introduction. There's a few comments I'd like to read from before I get into the book itself. Um, I've I've already been giving you the the beginning of the introduction that this book is intentionally written to cover the time period after colonialism. Now, colonialism began around the 1800s. I say around because there was different involvement from Europe greater, to greater and lesser degrees in different countries. But colonialism really began in full stream around 1860. And by eight, 1954, not even 100 years, they're kicking out the colonial powers. So for about 100 years, Africa had 
many, some of its countries under colonial powers. Some of the countries were less than 50 years under colonial powers because some of them didn't come in until later. So if you look at all of history, for example, from the time of Jesus until today, not even 10% of any African country was under colonization. So we need to keep things in perspective when people begin to talk about what happened with colonization and was it good or bad, what was good and what was bad. When the European powers began what's called the Scramble for Africa. The Scramble for Africa began around the 1870s when Portugal and Britain both had taken some territories in Africa, partly by force and partly by trade. That is, sometimes the Africans were very glad to have the Europeans because they would bring trade. Sometimes they were not glad to have the Africans because they would take in the slave trade. But when Britain and Portugal began to take a number of territories, then Belgium and Germany and France began to say, hey, maybe we should take some of those territories too. Maybe there's a lot of money to be had. Now he covers this thoroughly, but what's very interesting is after 1900, after 30 years of colonialism, the British Secretary for Colonialism wrote, our colonies cost us more than they make us. We're only in those colonies for two reasons. One is we're afraid other European powers will take them and try to attack us. They'll build up bases so that they can attack Britain. And number two, can you guess the second reason that Britain and a number of the other countries, well, but especially Britain, stayed in Africa for another 50 or 60 years? The missionaries. Back in Britain, there were all of the churches that were getting fired up about sending out missionaries. And especially in Scotland, which pressured London greatly. Don't pull out of Africa, because if you pull out of Africa, what will happen to the roads? What will happen to the shops? And if there's no roads and no shops and no clinics and no hospitals and no schools, it will be much more difficult to send in missionaries. So because of the pressure of the missionary lobby, many of the colonial powers stayed in longer than they would have, which is interesting because these days it is commonly said that The colonial powers took Africa because they wanted money. They thought at first maybe they would get money, but they learned very quickly, you can't oppress a people who don't want you there and make money out of it. It doesn't, at the end of the day, you lose more money than you make. And they would have pulled out more quickly if it hadn't been for the Christians saying, what about the missionaries? We want to be able to send missionaries. 
Few parts of Africa, this is from page five, few parts of Africa offered the prospect of immediate wealth. Colonial governments were concerned above all that their territories would be self-supporting. Thus, the government was kept at a minimum. Schools were placed in the hands of Christian missionary, missionaries. Economic activity was left to private companies. The government's functions were limited to law and order, taxes, roads. Now, if that's all the government did, that wouldn't be too bad, would it? If all they did was <clears throat> you have the police, you make the roads, and, and then taxes to pay for police and roads. Hey, fantastic. That, that'd be nice. That'd be, that'd, be, that'd be like a Christmas present. Give us some beautiful roads, give us a police service, and then don't bother us. That'd be a pretty good place to live. That's the way it was for some time. In much of Africa, therefore, the colonial imprint was barely noticeable. That's not what we hear commonly. I'm evangelizing a young man in Chicota who says, Africa was a paradise before colonialism and the colonialists ruined it. Well, on page five, this man says, in much of Africa, the colonial imprint was barely noticeable. Only a thin white line of control existed. In northern Nigeria, Frederick Lugard set out to rule 10 million people with a staff of nine administrators. Nine! You got 10 guys to run 10 million people. There was, and, and someone may say, well, that means they had all the power. Yes, but if you're only 10 people, those 10 people are not omnipresent. They can't see you at your home and everywhere else. They can't bother you. It would be wonderful if the government was only 10 people. They let you have your freedom. You can do what you want. You can start your business and, and have liberty. That's what we want, right? And he goes on to catalog West Africa. 3,000 African troops <clears throat> controlled all of West Africa. By the late 1930s, following the amalgamation in Nigeria... The number of colonial administrators had grown to 400. That was in the 1930s, 30 years later. Uh, in British Africa, which was Tanzania, Zambia, uh, Kenya, Zimbabwe, and South Africa. 43 million people were governed by 1,200 administrators. Compare that today with the South African government with 2.5 million government employees for 50 million people. Almost the same population and over 100 times the number of government employees. Who pays those employees? Every time you buy at SPAR, you're paying the government employees. Who paid these government employees? Well, this, the people did. But I'd much rather pay for 1,000 workers than I would 2.5 million workers. By the way, uh, the largest employer in South Africa is what company? 
Standard Bank, 69,000 people work for Standard Bank. Oh, wait, that's outside of the South African government that has 2.5 million. Do, do you see that? I, I mean, imagine those two together. The one's like a little baby and the other's this huge man. And where's that money going to come from? Because Standard Bank gets its money from its customers. You know what you're paying. If you want to go to Standard, they show you the fees. You can choose or you go to Capitec. But when it comes to the government, you can't choose. There's no options. There's one home affairs. <laughs> and that's the only one you can go to. <clears throat> In many cases, African chiefs came to constitute no more than a new cl class of intermediaries paid to transmit government orders. He mentions that the colonial powers were very happy to say, we'll pay the chief and the chief will be in charge of his people. But the chief learned something very quickly. They're letting me alone and they're paying me. So he began to take great power over his people. In 1931, half of the entire land of southern Rhodesia, that was Zimbabwe, was stipulated for the use of white farmers, who at that time numbered no more than 2,500. Half of the land of Zimbabwe. In South Africa, 87% of the total area was declared white land. That's about 1930. So there are, the whites are coming down saying, let's give it a try, let's give it a try, let's leave Europe and try to start our businesses down here. And you see, the reason they were doing it was the colonial powers were saying, we need to get out. We got to get out. We can't make enough money. And so some whites said, hey, let's give it a try. Let's rush down there quick before they get out. And when they rushed down, they took as much land as they could. And the governments would give them land. By 1910, about 16,000 European missionaries were stationed in the Sahara. Missionaries started almost all of the schools, almost all the schools up through 1960 were started and run by missionaries. So if you had a grandma or a grandpa who learned how to read, thank Jesus Christ. And many of the schools were started by missionaries. In the United States, some people say the United States was involved in colonialism, not true. The United States president was dogmatic that he would not support anything in Africa unless the, the national peoples were allowed to be free. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we're getting the, we're getting the example here. We're, we're, getting, we're getting the beginning. The beginning is colonialism starts... They take over, the European powers take over, and they say, we're going to rule this, this area for the good of the missionaries. We're going to see if we can get some businessmen in. And they try to load up the businessmen, but they still can't make things work. Financially, it's going down, and the missionary lobby is pressing them. But now, let's turn to freedom. The first country to get its freedom. Can anyone guess what country that is? Ghana. Does anyone know the name of the famous first president of Ghana. Kwame Nkrumah. Wow, well done. 1954. <coughs> A 44-year-old man named Kwame Nkrumah. He was in prison for three years. Why was he in prison? Because he said, give us our freedom. And the British, people, the British government said, 
No, you can't have your freedom. Finally, after not his full term in prison, they let him out and he was a superstar. Everyone loved Kwame Nkrumah and he began a party immediately. The Convention People's Party. He promised self-government now. He said, our self-government will solve all of your problems, all of your poverty, all of your sadness. He was given the nicknames Showboy. He was given the nicknames, oh, where's the nicknames at? I hear they are. He was given the names Showboy, Man of Destiny, Star of Africa, Hope of Millions, Deliverer of Ghana, the Iron Man, the Great Leader of the Street Boys. And they would have phrases and stickers saying, quote, I believe in Kwame Nkrumah. Even churches were encouraged to have Kwame Nkrumah days. Kwame comes to power in 1954, before the year is out. Kwame decides the government is going the wrong direction. Now, when Kwame took over, he, he was given a cocoa industry that was the first in the world. That is, cocoa was being exported from Ghana and making a great amount of money. Cocoa farmers... And workers were making lots of money and they were hiring people. There was also a gold mining industry that was going very well. And copper and other industries going very well. But before the end of the year, problems came up. Corruption began almost immediately. So right afterward, after Kwame took power... Immediately, the economy began to dive. So everyone blamed Kwame. So Kwame says, I know what we have to do. We have to have the government control the price of all the farmers. Now, what's going to happen when the government controls the price of the farmers? You want to sell your cocoa at 100 rand a kg, 20 rand or whatever a kg. And the government says, no, you can only sell it at 5 rand a kg. You've got 1,000 kgs and you just lost 75% of your profit. So they're all angry at Kwame now, the man they were just singing to. In fact, I skipped this part, but they even had hymns and prayers to Kwame Nkrumah. They made a statue for him. Now, not even a year into his rule, and there is huge anger all across Asante. So guess what happens? Not even a year into this miracle election, a new opposition party, the National Liberation Movement, springs up. And what you can do is you can do this for almost every country. Change the name of the political party. This one's the NLM, National Liberation, National Liberation Movement. Change the letters NLM to CPL or ZANU-PF, or ANC, and it happens that way constantly. In every country, the man comes to power and says, I'm going to deliver you. I'm your Christ figure. They were 
They called him the new Moses. Everywhere, not everywhere, but many, many countries, it's the same. They put their faith and their hope in the government. And within a year, another political party stands up and says, oh, this guy, he's a loser. Got to get him out. And do you think Kwame sits back and says, well, this is so nice. This will be good. Let's have the NLM and the CPP. Let's have, because that's his party, remember? The CPP? Let's have the CPP and the NLM. And we'll just, we'll debate fairly like gentlemen in public. Ubuntu all around. No, Kwame's angry at the opposition. And he tries to put them down by? By force. So we are in big trouble. Because the NLM calls Kwame a dictator who's going to destroy the Asante people. Kwame responds with, you guys are a bunch of liars. And so it goes back and forth, the fight back and forth. Now you get the idea. 1954, he takes power. In 1958, after four years of power, he is in trouble again. Because... Even though he's tried to form an African Union, and he did a number of good things. He was a clever man. He was an articulate man. Um, he did a number of good things. This is not, read the book. There's, there's goods and bads that are written in here. I'm just telling you the bottom line because I've got 32 chapters and 700 pages to get through. Point is, by the time Nkuma leaves office, though he had done many good things, though he brought freedom. That freedom is good. I want freedom. I want everyone to be free. Though he brought freedom, he began the pattern that you're going to see country after country. And that is, a big man takes power. He calls the people to respect him. And then as soon as the economy begins to go down, he thinks the way to solve the economy is with government laws. And that only makes the economy go downhill even faster. It's going to happen that way everywhere. Let me flip up here a few years in front. I, there's a number of these that are interesting. Um, well, let me, let me see what I have time for. Nigeria, just quickly. Nigeria, the most populous country in Africa. Most populous. There are few traces of the modern world in education or economic life. They had not been allowed to intrude in the north because the north was dominated by Islam. Notice this. This is a theme throughout the book. He's not a Christian. And he, he tries to downplay this, but I can see it as a Christian. The religion, the religion greatly affects whether or not the country is prosperous or not. Nigeria, he writes, <clears throat> he writes that the north of Nigeria was Islamic. Few traces of the modern world were allowed to intrude in the north. That means in the top of Nigeria, which is the most populous part of Nigeria in the most populous country on the continent. It was not allowed to have modern life, including schools. Why? Islam said we don't want the white man's religion. By 1950, there was only one university graduate from the north. One. The most populous country. And again, that's the religion. The, the Islam said, we don't want them. We don't want that influence. And 
as far as their religion goes, they were right. Because when you take schools, you're starting to learn. And that's not the way to stay Islamic. People who learn don't stay Islamic. They, they start reading their sources. So, once again, which is the theme the whole way through. He doesn't say this, but as a Christian, it's so clear. If you, if you follow the religious trail, you can see that the result of all the countries follows their religion. Uh, in the west of Nigeria, which included the capital of Lagos, it was dominated by the Yoruba. Because of the early contact with Europeans and the long experience of city life, the Yoruba had progressed far in education beyond the other three people groups who usually held political power. Do you hear that? So the Yoruba, he wrote, he says the Yoruba have contact with the Europeans. But we know because we're Christians, it's not Europe that does anything. When they had contact with the Europeans, what did they get? Schools and Bibles. And they got all of the virtues that come from a Christian worldview. Work hard, save for the future, one man, one woman for one life, don't drink, save your money, all those things. So the Yoruba grew very quickly because they had more contact with Christian principles. So the Yoruba become administrators and leaders in the country, which immediately becomes racial tension. So the other groups do not say, they do not say, hey, look at those guys. They're going to school. They're working hard. They're reading books. They're putting away multiple wives and they're just marrying one woman. I think I'll do that. Instead, what do they do? They're eating up with jealousy and they say, that's not fair. It's something else. It's the religion again. Do you see it? Christianity says, look at yourself and change. Islam says, look at other people. It's those guys. African traditional religion says, oh, those guys. It's not fair. And so Nigeria stumbles downward. 250 ethnic minorities. But they could not bring unity because, again, their religions did not want to have English as the language, for example. Nigeria began in 1960, 1960 with a state of optimism led by elected politicians. This is going to be good. Nigeria, by virtue of its size, population, and resources, was marked as one of Africa's emerging powers. But it did not take long for Nigeria to become overrun with corruption. And that's because... The class that had the greatest influence from Christianity was pushed out because of racism. They push out the people who were gifted, even though they were black. We don't want you because you make us feel bad. So they push out the black people who were helping to rule and doing a, a competent job. Under the guise of racism. Oh, you guys don't like us because you're racist. So we're going to kick you out and we're going to take over. And you see what happens with the country. The mass expulsion uh, in Kenya. They ex uh, expelled many, many Europeans. And not just Europeans. They, they expelled many peasants from the Kikuyu people. The Kikuyu people in the White Highlands. That's not racial. That's just an area that's called the White uh, Highlands area. It was the best agricultural land. And the Kikuyu peasants 
were kicked out from that area. So, all the political unrest in Kenya leads down as well. For time, let me move on to Congo because Congo is so sad and fascinating. Uh, Let me read one more thing about Nigeria. The trouble with Nigeria, writes Nigerian novelist Chinawa Achebe, is simply and squarely a failure of leadership. There is nothing basically wrong with the Nigerian character. There is nothing wrong with the Nigerian land or climate or water or air or anything else. The Nigerian problem is the unwillingness or inability of its leaders to rise, excuse me, to rise to the responsibility, to the challenge of personal example. That's Chinua Achebe in 1983. Was he right? You want me to read it again? Did you hear that? Okay, I'll read it once more and you tell me if he's right or if he's wrong or if he's in the middle. The trouble with Nigeria is simply and squarely a failure of leadership. There's nothing basically wrong with a Nigerian character. There's nothing wrong with a Nigerian land or climate or water or air or anything else. The Nigerian problem is the unwillingness or inability of its leaders to rise to the responsibility, to the challenge of personal example. True or false? Lloyd. Daniel. True. Vanessa? True. Nico? In the middle? Oh, I like nuance. I like that guy. Is that compromise or is that nuance? Caleb? In the middle. <laughs> okay, uh, Lloyd, why do you say true? And then Papa Nico, why do you say false? So, so the problem would be in the people, and the leaders are coming from there. Yes. Okay. What would you say? Why do you say false? Yeah, I said false because of his people, not the leadership. He said leadership. Yeah. So yeah. I said it's false because he said leadership, but the problem is people. Hmm. Hmm. I I think I think I agree with you both. I think Mr. Achebe should have put the problem with the mothers who raised those leaders and the fathers who married those mothers and the fathers who raised those mothers, right? Because where did those leaders come from? And if you look in history, you will see that same thing all through every people group. You could, you could say in every group, well, the problem's the people. Look, in China, uh, a thousand years ago, when they had some problems and, and warfare between dynasties, you could say, ah, oh, the problem with China? Nothing wrong with this, nothing wrong with it. It's just the leadership. Where'd the leaders come from? <laughs> Look at Britain before the gospel came. There were a bunch of pagan barbarians who didn't know how to bathe. Well, where do well, the problem is their chiefs? Well, where do the chiefs come from? <laughs> they had to come from a people. And Mr. Achebe explicitly says, even, he explicitly says 
There is nothing basically wrong with the Nigerian character. Now, that word character is ambiguous. What does he mean by character? Something's got to be wrong because where do those people come from? Where do those leaders come from? If it was just one bad leader, okay, but you would expect to get rid of him and then, then the problem fixed. But there have been many leaders. They got their freedom in 1960. Has Nigeria been a paradise for the last 60 years? If so, then why are they coming here to sell their drugs? Um, the, the, there's a bigger problem than that. It, it would be like people saying about the German, German people. There's nothing wrong with the Germans. It's just Adolf Hitler. No, there was a big problem with the German people. They all were angry. They all were trying to take free handouts from the government, which is one of the reasons why their stock market fell. They were trying to get free things from the government instead of working. And then when they tried to take free things, their stock market fell. It wasn't, one, it wasn't Adolf Hitler who took all the money from the government. It was all the German people. Then the stock market falls in the 1930s. Now they've all lost their jobs. What do we do? So then they elect Adolf Hitler. The problem was not, well, just one man. It was many people. There was something wrong with the character and it has to change. It was not one leader that has permitted abortion in America. There was a problem with the character of the American people that allowed babies to be murdered. It was not one man that allowed the slave trade in Britain. There was a problem with the people. He said, well, if it was just one king, if it was just one king, then how did the slave trade go on in Britain for 400 years? There was a problem with the people. And they need to be honest with it and accept the guilt uh, for their people. And what's interesting, I almost did tonight um, one of the books, a biography of Richard Baxter. Hopefully next week I'll be able to do one on Richard Baxter. It's going to be fantastic because, not because I'm a good communicator, but because those books are so good on Richard Baxter. Do you know Richard Baxter in the 1650s was openly writing to the British Parliament saying, stop the slave trade. There's no such thing as a Christian who owns a slave or buys a slave or sells a slave. You see, that's the way Christians talk. And Baxter would even come out and say, we cannot call ourselves a Christian nation. Our nation is full of wickedness because we are supporting the slave trade. Baxter got it right. And he would rebuke his own people because of the slave trade. And he's exactly right. Now, let's be honest in all people groups, though. So, that's Nigeria. Let me just jump here to, to Congo uh, because it's real. Oh, time, time, time. This is fascinating. 1965. There's a number of very interesting stories. I got to tell you about Uganda very quickly, too. Let me just tell you about uh, Congo. 1965, Joseph Mobutu comes into power, but he seized power from another Congolese. That's not... The first time that Congo was free. Congo became free before that with Patrice Lumumba. Pa 1960? In 1960, Patrice Lumumba, he stands up as the man to receive the power from the Belgian government. Now, the Belgian government was the worst, most despicable, most vile government. And they murdered many Congolese. And it was wicked and vile. 
and history condemns the name of Leopold II, the Belgian king who stole money and murdered people and took slaves out of the Congo. And the day when they're going to hand over the power to Patrice Lumumba, the Belgian uh, colonizing uh, head stands up and says, we're all at a dinner here today, and I just want to say that all of our black children need to be so grateful for all that we've done for them. We've done so much for our children. And then he sits down, and Lumumba stands up and says, some, in a paraphrasing, We hate you filthy liars and murderers. Get out of our country as fast as you can. They were supposed to sit down to lunch together. (laughs) And he shouts at them. And the whites stand up and say, you're so ungrateful. Ungrateful, you murdered us. Get out of here, we hate you. So they leave. Well, as soon as they leave, Lumumba comes to power. He comes to power within two years. He's beaten and killed. Because other people say, we want the power. Now, Leopold II did many terrible things, a wicked man. But he also built a system of roads and railroads all through the Congo. And that allowed the next king's dictators to take tons of money. Now we come to 1965. By the way, Lumumba met his end by being grabbed when his security guards weren't watching. He was grabbed, thrown in the trunk of a car, and rushed off. They opened the car up, beat him with baseball bats or cricket bats all over, but they would beat him so that he would not die. They wanted him to live long enough so they could continue to torture him. They tortured him for multiple days until he finally expired. Their goal was, we want him to suffer as much as possible. 1965, Mobutu comes to power. Joseph Mobutu is called, the chapter title is, The Great Plunderer. When Mobutu comes to power, Congo is sliding into chaos and corruption, but Congo has so many natural resources. Do you know what natural resources are in the Congo? Rubber and diamonds. There's other things too, but so much money from rubber and diamonds. You could have enormous companies in Congo. You could have lots of people, millions of people working for the diamonds and the rubber. And then, of course, you can have to have people working for truck companies for those and the boats. You could have, you could have millions of people employed just for rubber and diamonds. But instead, Mobutu, for sake of time, I'm going to go quickly through this. You can borrow. This chapter is fascinating. Mobutu, when he comes to power, decides that everyone must speak to him as if he is a god. Here is the way he required them to speak. Quote, nothing is possible in Zaire without Mobutu. Zaire was the old name for Congo. They eventually changed it to Congo because Zaire was the name the whites gave it. He changed it to Congo. Nothing is possible in Zaire without Mobutu. He created Zaire. He fathered the Zairean people. He grew the trees and the plants. He brings rain and good weather. You don't go to the toilet without the authorization of your great guide. Zairians would be nothing without him. Mobutu has obligations to nobody, but everybody has obligations to him. Close quote. You must say that about and to Mobutu. Now, do you see how that comes from the religious idea 
that the chief is the big man. He has this great store of power and he gives it out in little, in little chips. That is straight from the religion. But listen to what he does next. Because he's the big man, because he creates everything, then what does he deserve? He deserves everything, doesn't he? So even though they have this growing industries, he seized one million U.S. dollars into his Swiss bank account. One million U.S. dollars. That's more. But that's nothing. Why speak in one million? Three hundred million U.S. dollars were taken from different Zairean companies in 1977, 11 years after he's taken power. He's not done yet. He's just getting started. Between 19, in 1981, it was discovered that Mobutu had stolen $150 million in foreign exchange from the central bank and put it in his private account. In 1981, he ordered the central bank to transfer an additional $30 million U.S. million to his personal account. At the same time, he took 20,000 tons of copper worth about 35 million U.S. dollars and sold it for his own benefit. He took over the diamond mines, the cobalt mines. He had personal private aircrafts back in 1970. The budget and the mining revenues are really the private pool of funds from Mobutu and his friends. An official for the government said. An official for the government says, oh yeah, government money, it's his private. It's his bank account. He does what he wants with it. That's true because in the 1980s, he's been in power from 1965. After 15 years, his estimated fortune was 5 billion US dollars. That's 40 years ago. 5 billion, that's times 17. So that'd be 75, 80 billion rand. Yeah. And he had none of that money when he came to power because he's, he was from the slums. Yeah, exactly. Mobutu single-handedly single destroyed the Congolese economy. He had a private mansion that was built for $100 million U.S. dollars. Zuma, you got nothing. We got, we got small-time politicians here. What's in Kanva? That's, that, that's, that's a shack for the maid. Had a hundred million dollar mansion with a rotating, a rotating section of the house. He had a section of the house that would rotate so that it could turn with the sun. So that if they were too hot, they could turn away. If they were too cold, they could turn into the sun. Now, we're laughing 40 years later, but there were poor suffering people. Leopold II, the Belgian colonizer, Killed many people. So did Mobutu. We don't hear a thing about him. Leopold II's a wicked, vile criminal. What about Mobutu? Nothing. Mobutu stole all that money and much more. In 1975, the government fell into arrears. Oh, I wonder why. And could not pay three billion U.S. dollars. On and on. The stats, they just begin to bog. You can't even count the amount of money. But if you just imagine that there's 40 million Congolese people. And they lose five billion U.S. dollars. Because that's what the guy had. He came in with nothing. Fifteen years later, he has five billion. Where did he get it from? He got it from those people. Take five billion, divide it by 40 million... And you're going to see what every one of those people lost. 
So the reason for the poverty is that man. And that man is a result of the people group. Because it was not influenced by Christianity. Just quickly, because I'm way over time now. In Uganda, Idi Amin came to power. In the early 1980s, Idi Amin was a terrible dictator in Uganda. He took power. In fact, there's pictures in the book here of Idi Amin. He came to power without a high school diploma. And it was, it was obvious because he couldn't, he couldn't read. Here's Idi Amin, eaten and getting ready to shoot a, a bazooka. He was able to fight very well. He was a lieutenant in the army. He could fight with his fists well. He was actually a foolish man, and he couldn't do, he couldn't do the tactics of war. There's Idi Amin, and here's a guy in Ethiopia. Ah. Here's a guy in Ethiopia that, again, we won't have time to cover this guy either. Here's a, a boy in Ethiopia that suffered from Mengistu. Mengistu was an African ruler who took over in Ethiopia. And that boy, along with millions of others, died in the state-sponsored famine when Mengistu took over. This boy lived under Mengistu. Mengistu is this guy right here. That's Mengistu. He built a pleasure palace where he had lions and tigers walking with the people. He had an enormous pleasure palace. He outlawed private companies. And what year was that? Uh, do you remember the year, Caleb? 1954? No, it's after 54. Um, Mengistu was in power in Ethiopia. And there was a, a famine that came in that was completely... Preventable. It was the state, the government. The only reason that famine hit was because of the government. He writes in his books that there were miles of section on the road. People would drive by and see people crawling as skeletons. He said you would pass row after row of people crawling as skeletons trying to get to the city to beg food. He said millions of people died from starvation. Do you know what it's like to not just go to bed hungry? To die of starvation, you need to go through months of no eating. Or just eating not enough so that life slowly ebbs away. In Uganda, something similar happened with Idi Amin murdering 250,000 of his own people. You know Uganda, it's a small country by Congo to the east, northeast of Congo. When Idi Amin was finally deposed, he wasn't killed he actually was given refugee status and went to a European country where he could live the good life. And in Uganda, a man came in who was even worse than him. He killed 300,000. What was his name? You remember? Uganda, Somalia. You read the story on Rwanda. Country after country. In category after category. <clears throat> when freedom came, if you, if you look at a chart of economic prosperity, after, after freedom, it falls. If you look at a chart of infant mortality, that is how many infants die when they're born, after freedom, 
it shoots up, the infants die. If you look at the AIDS, he has a chapter in here on the AIDS rate. If you look, as soon as AIDS came in, it shot up. Martin Meredith doesn't deal with why. But we need to deal with why. Because we love the people. We don't just look at pictures of starving children. We care about them. We want to do something to help them. We're not interested to put blame because we, we just want to feel good. about. We, we want to find where is the problem so we can get a solution. We're not interested in feeling good about ourselves. And I'm certainly not interested in you feeling good about yourself. I'm interested in those little boys and little girls having food. And those fathers being good fathers. And in Christ being praised. He does not give us this. All he gives us is the facts of what's happened. But we have Christianity. And so we know if you don't set up the Lord Jesus Christ truly in the hearts of people, you're going to have great problems. What I've taken from that book, and the reason it was the book of the year, is that book proved to me we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need America. We don't need colonialism. We don't need English. We don't... We need the gospel of Jesus Christ in Europe, in China, in America, in South America. And as Martin Meredith showed us, we don't need freedom as much as we need the gospel. Any questions?